I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Gutsfried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're heading to the movies. Films have delighted and inspired audiences around the world, leaving an indelible mark not only on our lives, but on our food culture and habits. Popcorn, anyone? We'll be joined by David Nugent, artistic director for the Hamptons International Film Festival. There are also times where I think, wow, here's a great film that I bet our audiences probably wouldn't have heard of or checked out before, and they might not like it, but we're gonna play it anyway, because what other reason would you have a film festival for than to try to expand the people, the audience's sort of idea of what a film can and should be. We'll sit down with master film critic and writer Bobby Rivers, known for breaking bread with much of all of Hollywood's elite. He joins us for a delicious conversation about everything from cocktails with Lucille Ball to the best food scenes in cinematic history. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. What is the Hollywood attraction to food? Food is a predominant feature in our lives. Whether you're somebody who takes pleasure in food or somebody who sees a little more in it than just sustenance, food, and a frequent consideration. It is also something which can take on a myriad of connotations. Those to do with family, class, love, passion. As a result, food is an excellent tool for film and TV. To forge a connection or understanding between the world they've created and the world of the audience. Although food has been part of motion pictures since the silent era, for the most part, it has been treated with about as much respect as movie extras. It has always been there on the screen, but seldom noticed. That is until the 70s and 80s when the food's photogenic qualities were discovered by a handful of filmmakers who made food a star, thus giving birth to the new genre, food films. The New York Times hailed Bobby Rivers as a master interviewer with a gift of banter on his cable primetime celebrity talk show. It is no wonder this master of entertainment has interviewed Hollywood's elite. Cocktails with Lucille Ball in her home, hugs from Tom Hanks, and the likes of Betty Davis, Kirk Douglas, Meryl Streep, Shirley MacLaine, to name a few. And while in London, perhaps there was a little say, say, say with Paul McCartney. Maybe I'm amazed. He writes for TCM Turner Classic Movies and ABC's movie critic and entertainment editor, a TV game show host, and I can go on and on. I was fortunate enough to be interviewed by Bobby on two occasions for live TV. One, a Super Bowl feature where we cooked together. And the second one was the kickoff summer season at Jones Beach, which I fondly, fondly remember <laughs> many years ago. Bobby, thanks for joining us. George, man, it is good to see you again. Well, Bobby, this for certainly today is this is not your first radio because you shared a spot with Whoopi Goldberg on her radio series. What was that like? It was extremely surreal. The show was out of Manhattan and she had a morning show called Wake Up with Whoopi. Live weekday mornings, national. I had interviewed Whoopi. In the first week of my talk show, when I was on VH1, and she remembered me, she contacted me to do entertainment uh, news and film reviews, talk about new films and old films on her show. I would go to work, pre-dawn hours, sit in the studio right next to her, thinking, here's somebody who's internationally famous. People just know her by sight. They don't even have to hear her voice. I'm not internationally famous, and I'm sit, sitting here working with her and making her laugh. I, I was extremely grateful for the gig, 
but it, it's still, I, it's still to this day, I will look at her in a movie or on TV and think, I sat next to her elbow to elbow for two years and worked with her on air. Well, you have been elbow to elbow with many, many iconic uh, people from Hollywood and you know what? from TV. I didn't wind up becoming a big TV celeb like Ellen DeGeneres or Drew Carey hosting a game show. But I have been extremely lucky and have a lot of privilege in, in my career. You know, going back to when I started in radio after I graduated from Marquette University in Milwaukee, and one of my first assignments was get a sound bite from Betty Davis. And I went, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, okay. And I did, and, I'm, and she was terrifying, but she gave me what I wanted. Oh, I'll tell you this. So I'm, I have my tape recorder, and I'm sitting like knee to knee with Betty Davis. She was in Milwaukee to promote Death on the Nile. And I thought, and my news director, who was wonderful, said, you know, I only need like a couple of bites for the morning to ask her about the movie, whatever else you want to answer. So I'm about to ask her questions. So I had my tape recorder. The tape recorder is working. And she had this little uh, paper plate of cheese cubes. And she would not stop <laughs> stuffing cubes in her mouth <laughs> as I'm asking her a question. Okay. So I ask her a question. She begins to answer. A cheese cube pops out of her mouth no way. And, smacks, and lands smack dab in her lap. And she's still for a moment, and I'm thinking, be a gentleman. So I reach, and she goes, I'll get it. And she pops the cheese back in her mouth. Oh my God. Well, I'll never. <laughs> one of my for, one of my former bosses, who I love, was like standing off to the side, and I finished. He went, "Why were you reaching for Betty Davis's lap?" And I said, "There was cheese in it." <laughs> that is so crazy. So, did when when you had cocktails with Lucille Ball, did she serve cheese, or or? You were off it by then. <laughs> no. Lucy and I had vodka. <laughs> and how that came about was uh, a gentleman who worked for an ad agency was related to Lucy uh, via her second husband, Gary Morton. So he was going to be in L.A. to work on a project. I was in L.A. to do some taping for VH1. And he called me and said, you know, Lucy is seeing you on VH1, and she likes your work. And he said, call me while I'm in L.A., and I'm going to be staying with Lucy and Gary. And he gave me a number. So I called, and she answered the phone. And, and I became Ralph Cramnan, you know, humana, 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 humana. <laughs> and <laughs> I identified myself. Hi, this is Bobby Rivers from VH1. And, I, and she went, hi, Bobby. I've seen you on the air. This is a Latter-day Lucy. And it was St. Patrick's Day, 1989. And she said, what are you doing around cocktail time? And I said, nothing. Come on over, we'll have cocktails. So there I was at 6 p.m. having vodka with Lucio Ball and like dishing and talking about her old movies for 
an hour. I didn't want to overstay my my welcome. And then uh, her housekeeper said, dinner's ready. And she said, I'm sorry, we only have two pork chops. <laughs> one for me, one for Garrett. So, so I left, and they're sitting at a table like an old married couple watching Wheel of Fortune. You know, I said goodbye. She went, I just love Pat Sajak. <laughs> Bye, Lucy. And here's the thing that impressed me about that. Earlier that day, I was thinking of the Sunset Marquee Hotel, and I was a couple of tables away from Bruce Springsteen. And MTV was at this table, VH1 was at the table, not at the table, at the hotel, rather, because we were shooting interviews. And I wanted to get a couple of sound bites from Bruce Springsteen relative to his album at that time, which was new, and we would be running a video on VH1. So I sent a note via the concierge. The concierge gave it to him. I never got a, res- I never got a response from Bruce Springsteen. Not a yes, not a no. And I went, I said, I'm positive you saw me. Only, only black guy on the terrace here. But then <laughs> Lucille Ball invites me to her house. And she's, when I got there, she was answering fan mail. And she said, oh you know, goodness. if it wasn't for the fans, I wouldn't have this house. Well, you know what, Bobby? After this interview, when Bruce hears it, don't respond. Oh. How's that? How's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's it while I wrote the note because you you know, well, of course, you know, New York is ahead of LA time. So a bunch of us, so a few of us from VH1 had to fly out. So we got the early flight so we could land in LA, like close to the early afternoon, still have some energy, work on our notes for the next day's taping. The hotel was packed, everybody went to their room. And the uh, the clerk said, Mr. Rivers, you're so sorry, but you can't get into your room. I said, why? They said, well, Mr. Springsteen is in it with a guest, and they're way past checkout time. And I went, well, I, you know, I understand. You don't want to kick him out. So I walked around in West Hollywood. Three hours. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't check about three hours. So I'm thinking, well, you know, he kept me out of my room for like more than three hours. Hook a brother up and give him a couple of sound bites. Yeah. <laughs> that we can exactly. air on VH1. He didn't. Well, you've been uh, in the company of many iconic stars. Uh, and there's a rumor there was uh, something between you and Tom Hanks. Is that is that true? Is there a little? <gasps> yeah. Tom Hanks was very special to me. And... I'd interviewed him before. I'd, I'd been, I'd been a, a Tom Hanks fan since Bosom Buddies was on ABC, oh, sure. the sitcom. Yeah. And I saw yeah. every episode. And, okay, here's the truth. I haven't told a lot of people about this, but it, here's the specialness behind my uh, affection for Tom Hanks. My... My partner had been diagnosed with AIDS. Hmm. And uh, his doctor said, I'm pretty sure he's got about another year. I didn't want to leave him because we were living together. But I got this opportunity to do a junket, do interviews for this new movie called Forrest Gump. Oh, wow. (laughs) And And the... 
we were my 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 partner and I lived in Chelsea, New York. The junket was in in L A. So um, he said, "Honey, I'll be fine." And his doctor said, "He'll be fine." So I gave the doctor my number. I, I always we always kept in touch. So got I got to L A. Saw the movie the next morning. I'm preparing to do the interview, so I'm I'm an hour until my my interview with Tom Hanks. I get an emergency call from the doctor, and she said, "I don't know what's happened, but his health has taken a serious turn. Hmm. I think you need to call his parents and have them get home. Yeah, you know, get home to him." So I thought, okay, I'm just going to catch the next plane. I got to cancel the interviews. Then the doctor called back and said, I, talk, I talked to Richard. He does not want you to leave until you do your interviews. Do your work. And she said, I don't know how, but I have a feeling that nothing's going to happen until you get here. Mm. Okay, so... I go in to Tom Hanks, my, my mind is obviously somewhere else. Tom Hanks stands up and goes, Bobby Rivers, the godfather <laughs> of cable TV. He had watched me on VH1, and that took me out of the pain. It warmed me up, and I did the interview. And at that time, well, I'll just say it, there was kind of, oh, not an embrace of diversity when I was working at WNBC TV. Mm -hmm. Case in point, I had done a wonderful taped interview of Harvey Firestein, the vice president of news at that time would not air it. And I said, it's a, oh, it's a fun wow. interview. He's talking, oh. and Harvey was promoting Mrs. Doubtfire and he had right. won Tony awards. And I said, Another why? Huge and his, his answer was, I have a problem with him being openly gay. Yeah. Jeez. And this is a, a news executive. Yeah. So when I was with Tom Hanks, I still, I wanted to make a point. And I'm thinking of Richard, and I said, when you, and, and I asked him, when, when you, you won the Oscar for Philadelphia, if you were gay and single and came out during your acceptance speech, how would that have affected your career? And he said, honestly, I probably never would have again played the guy who fell in love with Meg Ryan. Hmm. He said he would have been discriminated against in Hollywood. Sure. And that was sure. you know, the point that I wanted to make. So Tom Hanks had a very special place in my heart from there, go to 1999, I'm working on a local cable show in New York City, and it's like a, a little ragtag show with a crew that I loved, mm -hmm. and we got kind of like the end of the red carpet status for a premiere for sure. the Green Mile. We weren't even dressed up. I'm wearing a Santa hat. <laughs> and a fleece jacket. And the boss had said, oh, you know, Tom Hanks, you know, he's going to be on the red carpet. You know, all the networks are going to be there. Entertainment, Entertainment Tonight's going to be there. 
they're not going to pay attention. So this is good footage of them walking in to run to, as for closing credits of our Christmas show. I'm holding the boom mic because you know that's all. I, we, we're like a we're like a we're like a grunge band out of Seattle. And I went, hey, there's Tom Hanks, there he is. And and uh, he looks over. And he says, hey, Rita, look, it's Bobby Rivers from VH1. He comes over <laughs> to us, and we're like, what do we do? He gives me interview time. And I, oh, fabulous. You know, I, th I think I ran home crying like a 13-year-old girl who just got <laughs> kissed by her favorite rock star. I don't believe it happened. <laughs> well, Bobby, you've always, you've always had that special uh, impact on people, you know, um, you stick, Thank you. you You stick to them. You've stuck mm -hmm. to me my, my whole career. And I've been interviewed by so many people through the years. I, I think one of my most joyful times was my two times with you because it was real. You were real. You were real. And I love you for that. I, I love loved you that. having you as a guest. And I'm, I, I'm going to say this, and it's not just because I'm here right now, but that I'm glad to say it because I'm here right now. Because people in Good Day New York know this because I sit in the office. In the four years that I was on that show, mm -hmm. you know, you know, we ate, you know, food from different places. The best food, yours, and a chef at a firehouse in Brooklyn. Okay, you got to give it to right? the firemen. You have to give it up. You have to give yeah. it up to them. I can't remember what hook and ladder company it was, but the guy put out a book, you know, to raise funds, you know, and we're like, this one is great. And then you, and you. Well, you know, the Godfather has spoken, as Tom Hanks said. <laughs> Bobby, Bobby, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Um, it's, it's just George, been special. It's it was, something I've been, always wanted. Thanks for we're letting gonna, me We're going to do this so again. We're going to talk more about film and movies, but I'm so glad we, we caught up. Yeah, those stories are fantastic. If you'd like to read more about Bobby TV and his film reviews, his commentary, visit bobbyriverstv.blogspot.com and, of course, Bobby Rivers TV on Twitter. Bobby, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, George. Cheers, my friend. You too. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. Some of my most memorable post-movie discussions always took place in a booth at a local diner over a milkshake and fries. There's just something about the diner which makes it the ideal place for post-cinema chats and casual meetups with friends. So how did the diner we know come to be? The first prefabricated diner company would go on to build more than 2,000 diners between 1917 and 1956, with a modern structure premiering at the 39 World's Fair in New York as part of a demonstration on how fast food could be served. Although located throughout the U.S., diners seem to be more popular in the Northeast. Today, New Jersey is truly the home of the American diner, with more diners than in any other state. With its chrome decor, comfort food, unlimited coffee refills, with a family-run 24-hour service, diners will continue as long as people gather to chat about business, movies, and have first dates. And that's good to know. 
This snack is centuries old, highly economical, and when prepared with steamed air can be good for you. Besides, millions are attracted to the aroma, crunch, and seasoning. So why do we eat it in the dark? Hey, Alex. George, how's it going? Good, good. You know my favorite snack, right? Potato chips. That's right. You know George Crumb, the uh, inventor of chips from uh, Saratoga, is like my hero. Yeah, I don't know anything about him, but I could imagine he is with he the is. way you eat potato chips. Yeah, I, I even celebrate his birthday, the first day of potato <laughs> chip making. That's but, insane. <laughs> but but we, we, we're not talking about chips today, so I'm going to uh, have to get off this. And I uh, thought I was going to learn about the nope. first day of potato chip making, no. darn. <laughs> no, no, it's going to be about it's going to be about popcorn because potato chips never made it into movie theaters. No. And uh, the main reason behind that is because popcorn was very economical. Yeah, well, I think that we are reliving the reason why popcorn made it into theaters in the beginning anyway, because I believe popcorn started off in movie theaters during the Great Depression when ticket sales were dwindling. And as theaters are going out of business left and right because people watch so many movies at home, popcorn sales are a big part of what's keeping them open. The popcorn actually in the Depression area, like you say, was not prepared by the theater owners at the time. It was prepared outside. They had vendors that would pay a fee to stay outside the movie theater. It's like when you go to a football game and those guys are selling you those bad hot pretzels out of a shopping cart. Yes, the soggy, soggy pretzels. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so, you know, but theater owners began to look at um, poponomics. We kind of call it in the uh, accounting. That what we call it poponomics. <laughs> yes, so that's a, that's the official. Term. That's the official time. Okay. And then they began to the number crunches. Uh, crunchers began to look at you know the costs of wow we could do this ourselves. Yeah, you know. So they began to set it up in the theaters, especially after the silent film era, because during the silent films they didn't want people crunching. Oh, okay. While I was they thinking, were reading. Yeah, I was thinking of the popping noise of the corn cooking, but yeah, you don't want people crunching away. And yeah. But once the talkies started and the mass of people, I think it, it, it became like 90 million people went to the movie theaters, and it would be about the same time as, as the Depression. Um, it became affordable for these people to come in and for like 10 cents, you know, have a movie and, and, and some popcorn. So when they looked at the, the amount of money they can make it, on making their own popcorn, they began to find that the costs of actually selling tickets could be offset by the cost of the popcorn. It's like selling booze at a restaurant. You can offset a lot of food costs by yeah. selling liquor. You know, a lot of successful business models are come from some type of ancillary item that actually brings in more money than the product you're selling. Yeah. Ticket sales had to be shared to the movie distributors, maybe about 40% went to the distributors, whereas popcorn sales, they got to keep. And out of that, 85% of the funds from popcorn actually went right into their pocket. So if you're thinking, well, I mean, they're just ripping me off. No, it, it actually helps keep the ticket sales down. But what I find intriguing, what is it that caused the, the success from the people? you know, with popcorn itself. And I think a lot of the factors are, just like we started talking about in the beginning, is it was the aroma. It was the aroma of it cooking, of it, you know, popping. Yeah, well, that that smell is unmistakable. When you walk into a movie theater, you you recognize popcorn immediately. Even if you're at home and you're microwaving popcorn, you'd 
just know that it's like family movie day. It, it just brings you to that place where you're watching a movie, hanging out with friends and family, and it's like a fun, light, awesome snack. And you talk about hanging out. Um, you know, there's been times that you've stayed over, you know, our house, and we hung out, and, you know, we barbecued, we grilled, and then, of course, we start to, you know, watch some movies, but we always made popcorn. Yeah. Before we – and there's probably – Nothing. Even though I'm a, a, a chip fanatic, you know, would like popcorn and watching a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, I, we love Wes Anderson movies. Weirdo colors and crazy plots. It is. I mean, you know, my favorite. My favorite being the Grand Budapest. Yeah. Hotel. I mean, that movie's just insane. Yeah. You know, Mendel's Bakery. Lobby Boy. Yeah. Lobby <laughs> Boy. Lobby Boy. So, um, it it just makes for a really good time to be able to just watch a movie and have some snacks and have some um, some popcorn because it's also good for you if it's if it's prepared you know healthy you don't necessarily have to use oil of course you can put a little oil in the pan and get it to about 400 450 degrees not any higher cover it put the kernels in cover it and then just let them pop and keep shaking it um, but popcorn will actually pop by itself if you just put it in a, in a empty pan. Do you know the fake goo that they put <laughs> uh, in the movie theaters? Actually, yeah. it starts with the corn itself. The yellow corn is a very, very um, sweeter, right? Sweeter corn. Yeah. Uh, it gives the impression that it's soaking with butter. Yeah. Um, whereas the white corn has more flavor and it's cheaper, but they can't sell the white corn because people think it doesn't have the artificial butter on it yeah gotta have the artificial butter that's right and the mega mega salt yeah well i mean when i was a kid everything was insane that you bought on tv and everything was neon colored and i can remember the i can remember the commercials to this day so pop secret made a product called pop quiz and on the commercial there's this like bad zach morris wannabe actor who is like a game show host and then these insane giant lounge chairs that were like bright orange would roll these kids out and then they'd start popping this popcorn and they'd have to guess what flavor it was and when you opened it it was some type of like neon nuclear waste green or like a bright orange the popcorn itself I, who knows what's in it it was like the funnest thing ever and the commercials were over the top it was super 90s like giant block decorations with weirdo colors and that's what they fed us when we were kids and i loved it and popcorn always reminds me of things like pop quiz going to the movies and things like ecto cooler when ghostbusters came out we'd get juice boxes of this green juice that had slimer on it it was called ecto cooler everything that i ate as a child i'm pretty sure was some type of unnatural color i don't even know <laughs> what type of food coloring you would put in but like popcorn gives me this nostalgia to being a little kid um so did you take the stuff into the movie theaters that was stuff that you would like eat at home you know what i mean like the pop quiz was just microwavable bags um in the movie theaters we'd buy popcorn but we'd sneak in candy and sodas and stuff like that yeah because you couldn't afford to go to a movie and pay for all that stuff when you were like 15 12 years old it's really funny about the even the origins of popcorn you know it it, it goes back to like south america yeah it started in peru was the first evidence of uh corn cobs that had been popped about 6,700 years ago. And the, that that was only discovered by archaeologists in 2012. They found these popped kernels on a corn cob in Peru. 
Now, I like to think that it made it – well, it did make its move to North America and the Northeast. And they say it could be from uh, whaling fishermen that were down – fishing down there and then brought these kernels back that they were just so fascinated to see these dried corn kernels just explode. Yeah, well, I think that the original – popcorn too was more like a corn nut it didn't really pop right. the way it does today and then they just right. kind of kept interbreeding and genetically yeah making. genetically yeah. making it until they got the popcorn that we know now joining us today is david nugent he's been awarded for the excellence in teaching from harvard university he has written festival coverage for IndieWire and participated on panels at the sundance film festival the Dubai Film Festival, and IFP's Independent Film Week and Script-to-Screen Conference. He's been the director of programming for the Newport International Film Festival, and he's now artistic director for the Hamptons International Film Festival, where he also directs the festival's annual screenwriting lab and produces and programs an annual showcase of documentaries called Summer Docs with festival co-chairman Alec Baldwin. He has delivered guest lectures at Harvard, Columbia University, Pratt Institute, Hunter College, and served as judge for student films at both New York University and the School of Visual Arts. David, it is such a pleasure to have you join us. I have seen your programs. I've listened to you. You are are remarkable. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you had a very long tender – excuse me, you had a very long tenure at the new school – uh, yeah, a, a I guess I, yeah, I guess I spent around 10 years teaching there. You know, I lived in Boston for seven years when I got out of, uh, out of college. And then I moved to New York City really on, a, on an absolute whim where I did not have a job. Uh, and uh, I didn't really know what to do. And I spent about, took me about a year or so to get my footing and figure out what to do. And since I had taught for so long, I just applied for a job teaching at the new school. But since academic calendars need to plan so far in advance, I had to wait a year to get the job. But I got it. And then I taught for probably about 10 years or so, usually at nights while also doing other jobs in the industry, including the one I have now during the day. And mm-hmm. I did that job all the way up to the, to the time where I had my first child. And then it just got to be too much to... Uh, have the day job, have the kids, and teach at night. But I love teaching. Uh, I, I miss it these days. And I had a good 10, 12, whatever year run with it. What type of courses did you teach at the school? So at the new school, I taught the history of American independent film and the history of documentary film. Uh, and then proceeding, you know, when I was in graduate, I went to graduate school at Boston University. And then afterwards, I worked at Harvard University and MIT as a head teaching assistant. And I did all sorts of classes there. Uh, a queer cinema class, a world cinema class, uh, African-American studies film class, uh, video art, um, New York City film, all sorts of different stuff. So I got a, I really, I learned a lot by teaching all of these classes um, with other professors there. So that was really helpful. But in, when I came to the new school, I really focused on the history of American independent film and the history of documentary film. Uh, David, in today's news landscape, we have a lot of political pundits and not as much long-form journalism anymore. Do you feel that documentaries have kind of filled that role in holding people and institutions accountable? 
I mean, I'd like to think so. I mean, I'm an avid newspaper reader and a longtime subscriber currently to uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Detroit Free Press, my old hometown newspaper. So I read the three of them every day. And I, I certainly, it, it saddens me to know that a lot of uh, newsrooms have been decimated the way that they have over the last 15 years. And I think, yeah, in a lot of ways, documentary films can fill some of that void. All of that having been said, you know, I don't want the film, the documentary films I watch to only be that. And the films a lot of times that excite me the most are films that uh, have a more sort of creative angle to them and, and other stuff. So um, I'm thankful that in a lot of ways the documentary film world has been able to fill in some of these blanks, the, some of the holes that's been left by newsrooms that have been reduced in size. But I also get excited about uh, about films that, uh, that don't necessarily take that approach. I will say we had a film last year in our festival that was called Collective, which was a Romanian documentary. I don't know if anyone saw, but it basically chronicled some journalists, sports journalists in Romania, who actually there was a terrible fire in Bucharest and it killed, and I'm going to mess up these numbers, but it killed, let's say, two dozen people. But then sadly, like another two or three dozen people died after the after the fire, which was really bizarre. And there were not enough journalists around to sort of figure out why. And it was these documentary filmmakers chronicling journalists that figured out that the reason it was is because of various corruption in the Romanian government that was taking place. Um, so yeah, so there are also times like that, exactly as you say, where documentary films can sort of help shine a light on, on issues that traditional journalism is not able to do these days. David, talk about as a professor uh, an encouraging perspective filmmakers and people who want to go into production, what type of advice would you give if you were counseling a, a student? Well, so I guess I would probably give different advice for a documentary filmmaker versus a narrative filmmaker because they are fairly different worlds. I will say, and, and I've been sort of, I've been involved in the documentary film landscape for roughly 20 years now, mm. and it's actually a pretty good time to get into it, I think. I mean, the, the fact, the advent of streamers uh, has really helped, as have the fact that a number of other just sort of traditional cable channels like ESPN, which had such success with their O.J. Simpson documentary a couple of years ago, yeah. or HBO, or the fact that Discovery is now leaning into documentaries. And then you add on top of that Netflix and Amazon mm -hmm. and all these other places. So there's an actual, you know, compared to when I first got my start and I really saw people struggling to find funding to tell their stories, if you have an interesting story to tell now, and if you have a good team behind you, I think you can find someone that will give you money to tell it. Now, narrative films are a different kind of creature, so I would give different advice there. Um, you know, it, it's hard sometimes to see some of the, the landscape of the mid-budget films sort of uh, disappear. So, which is to say, you could make a small movie with your friends for X amount of dollars, $100,000, $600,000, a million dollars, or you can go work on a Marvel movie for $200 million. But a lot of the sort of movies that like when I was sort of becoming an adult in, in like the early days of Miramax or things like that, those mid-budget movies, $5 million, $10 million, $15 million movies like Shine or Piano Teacher or things like that, I think it's a harder time 
to uh, to to work on those types of films in a lot of ways. So in terms of filmmakers, I would basically just tell them uh, an emerging narrative filmmaker, make as much stuff as you can in whatever form you can make it, whether it's TikTok or YouTube or just you know, mm. your backyard and submit it to festivals. Just be creative and keep trying stuff and making stuff no matter how or where. Uh, and then try to work your way onto bigger productions and kind of learn how some of those work. But, um, but yeah, two different sets of advice depending on the type of film that people would be making. Do you think that technology has shifted some of those people who may have uh, aspired to make a mid-level film into lower <clears throat> budget because of the fact that you can do a lot more with like an iPhone or some of the DJI products and things like that? I mean, I think in general, and this is not just symptomatic of today's climate, but if, if in a certain way having more money gives you a little bit more flexibility, oh, if I have more money, then I can hire you know, different equipment and different people and do more stuff. At the same time, when there's more money on the line, there are more people to answer to and sometimes less flexibility. So yeah, if you can go out and shoot your movie on a smaller budget and be less constrained by the variety of investors or other stakeholders that are a part of it, whether you use your iPhone or just a, a, a cheaper digital camera, I think you have more flexibility to kind of tell the tales that you want to tell. And a lot of times, some of the most interesting films we see from a lot of artists are those early films that they made with their friends, with borrowed equipment and stuff like mm -hmm. that, uh, sure. and who have less people to answer to. Once you're making a $30, $40 million movie, you may want to take it in this direction or that direction, but you better hope that the people that are writing those big checks are comfortable with you going that direction. Yeah, well, it's like a double-edged sword, right? Because you have to be really creative to make the lower budget films stand up. And as you get higher in the budget, you might not have that creativity because you have to answer to more people. Exactly. I mean, I think to a certain degree, that's why, you know, a lot of artists have been drawn to some of what Netflix has been doing recently, which is to say they've been taking these, you know, really successful, talented filmmakers like Alfonso Cuaron, Martin Scorsese, Jane Campion, uh, and just saying, here, here's a truckload of money in the case of Scorsese with uh, The Irishman or Cuaron with the case of Roma or uh, what's his name last year with, um, with Mank, um, David Fincher with Mank and just say, Fincher, hey, here, yeah, go make yeah. the movie. Yeah, go make the movie that you probably wanted to make for a while, but whatever the traditional studios said no to uh, for a host of reasons, why don't you go make it? And, and in many cases, uh, they have gone and made it, and I think they've probably really enjoyed that fact. How is the landscape looking, David, with domestic films versus uh, foreign films today? When you say the landscape, do you mean sort of the box office landscape, or what part of it do you mean... I, I would say in the in the production distribution access to uh, independent films. I mean, it's 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 such a strange time right now, so it's sort of hard to say. You know, I think there are a lot of productions that started back up. You know, when COVID hit, a lot of productions shut down for obvious reasons, and then the first ones I think to start back up were basically. Netflix, you know, when you have a big production, you get bond, you get bonded, you get insurance so that if something goes wrong, your investors sure. are covered. And I think a lot of filmmakers and companies were couldn't get that insurance because it costs a lot of money and it didn't make sense for their budget. And I think Netflix says, 
well, we have a lot of money, so we'll just do it <laughs> and we'll take the risk. And they took the risk. Yeah. Luckily, yeah. I do think, you know, and I, I can speak better to domestic production and distribution than I can international, but I do think a lot of it has come back and is coming back. But, you know, as someone who reads the trades every day, barely a day goes by where you don't hear about whatever movie or TV show is being shut down temporarily because of COVID. In mm -hmm. yesterday's news, there's some $100 million lawsuit with Mission Impossible 7 due to COVID insurance uh, issues. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are still a lot of hurdles to getting stuff back up and running. Um, that's for sure. Now, let's talk a little bit about the festival circuit. How does the uh, Hamptons Film Fest differ from, let's say, Sundance or uh, Newport or some of the other sure. festivals? Sure. So Sundance, uh, Sundance is a good means of comparison. So Sundance is really a discovery festival, which is to say it prides itself and excels at discovering talent. So when you go to Sundance every year, which I have gone to for, I don't know, the last 15 years or so, I mean, I did it virtually last year because that's how it happened, but I've gone mm -hmm. for the last 15 or so years. When you go... Sure, there's some filmmakers who you're familiar with and you're seeing their new movies and that's great. But the exciting thing about Sundance is that it's a discovery festival. And the films, a lot of the films that they're playing were by filmmakers that you probably haven't heard of before. And they're, so in other words, what that means for their perspective is, and they're also focusing on world premieres. So for the most part, the films that are there haven't played other festivals before and are by sort of early career filmmakers. Our festival, the Hamptons International Film Festival in October, is not as a, is not a discovery festival in the same way. Uh, we have some, we do some world premieres. We've got a handful of films this year that will be making their world premiere, which is to say they mm -hmm. haven't screened. And we're opening uh, this year's festival with a world premiere that, of a film that hasn't played anywhere. But generally, that's not the mission that we have. The mission we have is to find what we think are sort of the best films from around the world and bring them to the community out here who otherwise isn't, isn't really getting a chance to just all at once have sample from a great collection of films. And so our, our films will be made by sort of, not exclusively, but by a, a higher percentage of established filmmakers than you would say find at Sundance. And then also films that have played the Cannes Film Festival, uh, uh, the Berlin Film Festival, um, maybe the Toronto Film Festival, and we'll play them too, um, and that's fine. So we're a more of a, uh, I don't want to just say it's a greatest hits, because we also do mm -hmm. have some discoveries and some world premieres, but we're not focused as much on that. We're focused on bringing what we think are sort of the best, uh, the best films from around the world to our audiences out here on the east end of Long Island. What, what do you look for in a film when you want to bring it to the Hamptons International Film Festival? Uh, I mean, the, the ob this perhaps obvious and not that interesting question is quality is the most important thing. So everything else flows from there. So that's whether it's by a first time filmmaker or a filmmaker that's been making, you know, we played The Irishman and I thought The Irishman was great. And Scorsese's been making movies for 50 years. So whether it's someone who's in their 50th year of filmmaking, their first, it's, it's the quality of the film. And then beyond that, obviously we take into account our audience and I've been doing this job since 2007, so I have a pretty good sense of what our audience likes. So when I say I take into account our audience, in a lot of ways what I mean is I wanna play films that our audience like, likes, would, would enjoy, which shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that one would curate in that way. But there are also times where I think, wow, here's a great film uh, that um, I bet our audiences probably wouldn't have heard of or checked out before, and they might not like it. 
but we're going to play it anyway because what else? Why other? What other reason would you have a film festival for than to try to expand the uh, the people, the audience's sort of idea of what a film can and should be? So, and then we also have, you know, I want to find films. We also have a views from Long Island section. So we love to have films that were either produced out here on Long Island or uh, are by Long Island artists from the area or deal with issues um, in Long Island. So we love to do that. And then we have a num number of other signature programs that we hit as well. So uh, we have a section called Conflict and Resolution, which examines conflict regions around the world that are sort of looking to find a way to resolve these conflicts as well as an animal rights section and an air, land, and sea environmental section. So we also have a couple specialty sections, and those are a little, it's a little more sort of obvious how you find the films for those. You're looking for films with certain subject matter. But beyond that, we're just looking for what we think are sort of the, the highest quality films from around the world that our audiences will like. Now, the, some of the claim to fame to the Hamptons Film Fest, you've hit it right a number of times because last year's film, uh, one of your presentations, won the Oscar, and I think you kind of lead nationwide? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, we were excited last year that Nomadland won Best Picture. We're, mm -hmm. we're the only festival in the world to have played the film that would go on to win Best Picture for the last 10 years now. So, uh, you know, kind of stumbled into that in the very beginning. Uh, and that was really exciting. And in, well, in 2008, uh, I pushed really hard to have this little film called Slumdog Millionaire in the festival with, <laughs> yeah. with, with people. Nobody knew the name of anyone in it. And it seemed a little odd. And we really pushed to get it in. We got it in. That was my first full year of the festival. It went on to win the Oscar. After that, that the Hurt Locker film. won in 2009. We did not play the Hurt Locker because it came out in June, so it was not eligible. But the year after that, I think it was 2010, and maybe the King's Speech was 2010, and basically every year since that. So the last 10 years, one of the films that we've played in the festival has gone on to win Best Picture, and that's been, uh, I have, you know, that's obviously been really exciting, and I think that's helped raise the profile for the festival, and I think our audiences have really enjoyed that. And as these years go by, and now we're in double digits, I feel increasing pressure and hope that this year we'll also have the film that goes on to win. But it's, of course, 100% out of my hands and in the hands of the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences voters. So we'll see which direction they go this year. Well, David, I've, I've been to the festival many times. So has Alex. Um, I've actually listened to some of your presentations, which is remarkable. You are exceptional. On the, oh, well, that's on, on very, the stage. Kind, so very kind that's, of you to uh, say. Thank you. I can listen to you forever. So I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, David Nugent is the uh, artistic director for the Hamptons International Film Festival. For more on the Film Fest and for their programming and offerings uh, year-round, visit hamptonsfilmfest.org. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org slash radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. Popcorn is like one of those things that is just so universal. Everybody has an experience with popcorn. One of the things I found highly popular, which myself I'm not crazy about. You know, I, I don't really like sweets and I don't really like sweet and savory together, but you know, sweet and savory is very popular today. Um, and in relation to popcorn, you know, caramel popcorn is highly, highly popular. 
But this would be interesting, and I might not mind this as much. Not that I would taste it, but I wouldn't really sit down with it. And I think it would be a good pregame snack or something like that to have like a, you know, like a spicy caramel popcorn. Yeah, that would probably so be So putting a little bit of sriracha or a little bit of hot sauce. And, you know, I, I, I looked at a few recipes. You know, I'll, I'll make my own caramel sauces, my own different caramel nuts and everything. Um, and it, that can take a little bit of time. But really the simplest way, and sometimes if you're, you know, going to just kick back, relax, and watch a movie, you don't want to be in the kitchen, you know, being a junior pastry chef. Yeah. Um, just take a bag of, of caramel candies, uh, about three tablespoons of butter. You can put a couple drops of the hot sauce in there if you want it hot and spicy and maybe a couple spices that you might like. Uh, put it in the microwave, pour it over your warm your warm popcorn, and there you go. You have a really nice, easy, easy. And that's what sometimes, you know, making snacks and when you're entertaining is, is, is keep it easy. Keep yeah. it easy. Yeah, whenever I think of caramel popcorn, I think of those terrible giant tins of like four flavored popcorn that people give as gifts. That, that's not a gift. Please, anyone listening, don't ever give me a giant bad tin of popcorn. But that homemade caramel popcorn, wait, wait, that wait. sounds I gotta, pretty good. I got to make a note here because I have to cancel your <laughs> Christmas thing that yeah. I ordered. I do like, though, I'm not a big store-bought popcorn guy in a bag except for white cheddar popcorn. White cheddar popcorn is one like, of my favorites. That stuff I is like, like crack cheddar. to me. I could but, eat bags of it. But I, it, 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 it's kind of because when you eat the pre-made white cheddar popcorn in a bag, your fingers kind of get stuck with all this goo. Yeah, it's like eating Cheetos. You end up covered in yeah. white powder, then it gets all over everything. And then if you're drinking a beer with it, then your beer bottle yeah. or can gets all gummed up. That's a sacrifice I'm willing to make to eat a bag of white cheddar popcorn because it's delicious. Um, but I got to say, on the road, uh, I was at, uh, I think it was uh, an event up in somewhere in New England, in Massachusetts, that uh, we were walking around and they had, it was like grandpa's kettle corn or something it was called. You know, you smelled it, so you, you just go up and you buy it. Like yeah. you're hypnotized, walking up to it, and listening to these big kettles, popping corn and everything. It was probably the best corn popcorn I ever had. And it was, it was, it was Smitty actually who, who dragged me over to, uh, to grandpa's kettle corn. Yeah, popcorn's like anything else. Good popcorn is really good, and bad popcorn, not so much. I think that says it about it, you know. And uh, George, George Crumb, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.